All right, well, this morning, we're, we're, we're about to jump into a, a study which will take us quite a while, right, to study through an entire book of the Bible. And I, I, I thought it'd be helpful for us to highlight this moment, not just to highlight the fact that we're about to study the book of Hebrews together. And we're going to do that Sunday after Sunday. We'll interrupt it along the way, but we're going to study through this entire book and you know, I've, I've, I've never noticed how out of step that is with the church world more than right now. Because it's not how we do things as human beings. We don't sit in one thing for very long, right? We do Google searches. We flip on to the next thing. Uh, you're, i got to warn you, you're, you're going to be ready to move on to the next book in a few weeks. Uh, and it will be a long time before we move on from the book of Hebrews. And so today I, I really want to gather some, some value and some wisdom from scripture about what we're doing, what we do in this moment, how significant this gathering is to you and to your walk with Christ. There is an interaction taking place this morning that, that is somewhat mysterious. It's, it's in the scriptures. It's highlighted. It's big and it's important. It is the preaching of God's word. That's a unique exchange that God has designed for us to sit and be a part of. And we do it every Sunday. But sometimes we just totally take that for granted. We're just here because that's what we do on Sunday. We come to church on Sunday. But there is a can I, maybe a skill to interacting with the word of God preached. There's a posture to be able to receive what's being said every Sunday morning. So I really want to just fill that in. I titled the message this morning, An Introduction to Expository Preaching. And I'm going to use Hebrews as the backdrop for that because that's what we're about to do. But the, the pulpit is this unique exchange that God has designed. And we're, we're very casual people today. America breeds that. But I, you know, I was saved long ago enough to remember when, when people talked about the pulpit with, with deep respect, right? The first church I was in, they, they, the, the pulpit was called the sacred desk. I thought that's kind of, kind of a weird title, but okay. Sacred, it's a sacred desk. It's the pulpit. There was the reverence for the fact that something is happening when God's people are gathered together to hear his word. Now, I'm going to highlight a particular aspect of preaching through God's word. Uh, we will preach God's word, and most churches will do this in a, in a variety of ways. But I'm going to highlight this morning for us expository preaching. And if you're a, a fan of expository preaching, if you've studied expository preaching, you know something about that word. Um, you can over-narrow that word, and you can make it sound like the only time you're doing expository preaching is when you're doing what we're about to do going verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Okay, that is a method of expository preaching. It's not the only way to do expository preaching. And you'll see today, expository preaching has to do with being faithful to what the text in the Bible generates for you to talk about, rather than generating your own idea and grabbing a verse because, hey, there's a word in that verse that's similar to the word I'm using. Let me pull these two things together. That's how a lot of preaching is done, by the way. But it's not wrong to have topical elements or thematic elements or doctrinal elements that we study together. And we'll do that uh, on a Sunday morning. We've done that a lot in the last couple of years. 
because it's been the strangest few years that I think any of us have ever lived through. So there was so much pressure and noise from outside that it felt like often we needed to speak from the pulpit in ways that helped us travel through the moments. And that's how the Bible is in a lot of places, right? You get the New Testament, not because the Apostle Paul is expositing the book of Isaiah. You'll notice when he writes to the Galatians, he doesn't invite everybody in Galatia to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter one, verse one, as we begin to go through. That's not how we get Galatians, is it? We get Galatians by Paul staring into the moment that's happening right here in this area of Galatia. Here's the ideas you guys are interacting with, and here's the problems that's getting created there. And that needs to get addressed. And and we get the letter to the Galatians as a result of that. That's how you get Romans. That's how you get the New Testament letters. But there is a place for it just sitting in the revealed word of God, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. There's something unique about it. And you guys who have been here for a long time, you know, we've, we've done that. We've taken on some big books and we've spent a lot of time in some of those places, right? So we've studied through Exodus and the gospel of John and first Corinthians, first John, first Peter. Uh, we, we took just John 17 and did multiple weeks on just sitting in that one chapter. Uh, so that's kind of been our history. Of, of interacting with the word preached that way. But I want to highlight something that's in this first quote by Brian Chapel, And it's the fact that the pulpit is going to interact with the concept of authority. Right? The job of this pulpit is to clarify what has authority. And that's why you're interacting with, with both preaching is interacting with human thought and the word of God. And they're not always the same, right? At any moment, I could say something that's at odds with the Bible. At any moment. And your job, hey, 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 don't be aiming in that. You better back down there, Darren. Um, Your job is to make sure you're listening for the authoritative word of God. And every preacher would admit Hey, we do our best, but we're not always on target in what we say. We can overextend something, undersay something, uh, blur something because of the way we've handled it, etc. But that's the preaching task. But there is this dimension of authority about life and life's experiences and how you approach it and what you believe that the Bible is intended for us to interact with. I wrote in your outline... We've spent this week, all of us have, living in the structures and ideas that modern man uses to do and define life. Everywhere you looked this week, you interacted with somebody's idea about how to do life, what to avoid, what's good. There are structures all over the place out there for how to do relationships, how to find your way, how to get educated, how to get into the flow of the good life. Everywhere in your life, there's an idea that created something around you, right? The weekly pulpit exists for God's people to gather to hear what God says about himself, humanity, creation's purpose, the gospel solution to life's problems, our life mission, and our abiding hope. It's every week we gather to sort of regroup, if you will, from all that we've heard this week and all that we've been exposed to this week. Oh God, bring us back to that which matters the most. Brian Chappell in his book, Christ-Centered Preaching, he says, preaching addresses 
the perpetual human quest for authority and meaning. Though we live in an age hostile to authority, everyday struggles for significance, security, and acceptance force every individual to ask, who has the right to tell me what to do? This question, typically posed as a challenge, is really a plea for help. Without an ultimate authority for truth, all human striving has no ultimate value, and life itself becomes futile. Modern trends in preaching that deny the authority of the word in the name of intellectual sophistication lead to a despairing subjectivism in which people do what is right in their own eyes. A state whose futility scripture has clearly articulated. The answer to the radical relativism of our culture and its accompanying uncertainties is the Bible's claim of authority. The claim of authority and the premise of expository preaching is that God has spoken in his word. Thus, the expository preaching task is to communicate what God committed to scripture in order to give people, God's people, his truth for their time. If we believe this contains the actual words of God, that God spoke and revealed things and he spoke into life and settings and ideas and and he began to define things that exist, if we believe that, then then this is what we want to hear. Because where else are we going to go to gather our ideas, to define things, right? I mean, just any, any story begins with definitions. Words have to mean something. Things have to mean something for us to even participate in the story. So the story of life, what, what does it mean? What do these words mean? What do the concepts of life mean? What does it mean for you to be human? Right? I know I'm picking on this, but the world is presenting it to you every day. What does it mean for you to be male or female? What does that mean? There's definitions that are needing to be explored. Well, who has the right to fill in the definitions? Who has final say-so to fill in the definitions? For I mean, have you thought this stuff through? This is, this is the question of authority. Who has the right to say that is this and it's not that? That color's blue. Who has the right to say that? Uh, that's not blue. It may be blue to you. It's yellow to me. Right? We don't live like that. We kinda, we're kind of close in uh, lots of definitions. But when it comes to defining our existence, the purpose of our lives, the meaning of our lives, the boundaries of our lives, who has final say-so? I know it feels really cool. There's something about the idea that, well, nobody's the boss of me, right? Yeah, I, I'm my own boss. I'm my own man. I, I, I make my own decisions about what I believe and who I'm going to be, etc. You sure you want that job? You sure you're up for that task? You may have a moment where you feel like you're full of energy and you're full of ideas and you're on top of things. Can I just tell you that moment is not going to stay with you? 
at some point, life is going to give way and stuff is going to give way and you are going to give way and you're going to be really surprised and, and really confused and really dumbfounded trying to find answers for everything exists. You sure you want to have the final say? Can I just be honest? I don't want to have the final say. I don't want that job. I don't think I'd do a good job with it. I think I would do me a disservice to come up with the reasons for why I exist and who I'm supposed to be. And what's a fulfilling life for Keith, really? What, you know, go ahead and let me define that for myself. What's a fulfilling life? I don't want that job. Do you? Right, Jesus makes a massive claim. Towards the end of his life, he says a couple of things within days of each other. One is he stands with his disciples just before his feet are about to leave the earth. And he's going to be ascended into the, back to the throne. So he's, he's done his temporary thing here on earth. And he turns to his disciples and he, and, he, and he makes this statement before he gives them anything to do. He clarifies something very important. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples. When we pick up the Great Commission and we quote it, we often leave out the first part. We pick up the, hey, the Bible says, go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples. But Jesus made sure you understood that he had the authority to tell you to do that. Matter of fact, he said he had all authority. So there's something about our existence that we are looking for authority. We're looking for something to be the ultimate say-so in our existence. And Jesus, just before he had said that, just days earlier, he prayed for them in John 17. We studied through this. And Jesus said, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So when you and I come to this word, we come to something that has unique authority to speak to us to define our existence, to tell us where the boundaries are and where they are not, to tell us what's a worthy goal, to tell us how to set up our priorities, to command us to obey. Because when Jesus says, I have all authority, and he turns around and says, hey guys, now you go into all the world. There's a, there's a double sword in that command to go. One of them gives me hope. Jesus has all authority. So if I go in obedience to him, the world is going to respond to his authority. So if I go into the world and I bring the gospel, God's purposes are coming with me. And he has the authority and the power to pull it off no matter where I go. But before I do that, do you know what it said to me as an individual? The God of creation spoke to me and said, I have the absolute right over your life to tell you what to do next. And I'm telling you to go into all the world. Well, that's a great suggestion, but you know, I've got a lot of ideas about what would be personally fulfilling for me. I've read some stuff and I've, I'm in my second year of college and I have figured out a lot of things and God, thanks for the suggestion, but I think I got this. All authority has been given to me. You obey what I say. That's the tone of Jesus speaking. So when you and I come to a moment where we're going we're gonna to hear a message preached from the word of God. How, how do we approach this moment? Right? By the way, this is why preaching can be quite irritating. Because it interferes with the authority structures that you and I have created in our own lives. 
right? Out of my personality, out of the things that I'm afraid of, out of my value system, I construct stuff, right? I put this above that and I put this way down here because that's really not that important. And, and I've constructed a life, right? And I come sit in this room and somebody preaches and messes with my list. You might not like what I have to say from Sunday to Sunday. Because maybe preaching is taking this thing that you've put right here and telling you it really belongs right here. And you're like, no, it does not. Because you know, let me just tell you something, dude. If that goes from here to here, I'm nobody now, okay? So you're not game for that, are you? No, I'm not. Matter of fact, when you say that, that's offensive to me. You rub me the wrong way. That's why one of the reasons I can't stand coming to church on a Sunday, right? This is where, where does that feeling come from? Because I've built my own value system based on my own ideas and authority, based on my personality, based on where I come from, based on the experiences that I've had and the ones that I want to avoid at all costs. And preaching turns around and says, hey, this goes here, this goes here, this goes here. And, and it touched something in your world, didn't it? And so we kind of say, hey, so what'd you think of the message today? Did, did you like the sermon? Maybe you're in the, in the car on the way home with your kids or something. So what'd you get out of the sermon? Did you, did you like the message today? Uh, can I just say that's probably the wrong question to ask? Right? When you come to listen to a message being preached from the authoritative word of God, it's not a matter of whether you like the message. The real question is, was the message true to the Bible? Did the message help me understand how God has revealed himself and his purposes and creation? That's the real question. Not, did I like it? Because I like it comes from my personality and my preferences and my moment in life and the particular thing that I came in here troubled by that I wanted you to speak to and you said the opposite of what I wanted you to say. So no, I didn't like the message. But that's not the preaching task, right? The preacher never stands up here trying to be popular, hopefully. The only goal of the preaching task is to say what the Bible is saying to accurately present the authority of God's word. Now, remember, this is preaching. This is not just reading the Bible. This is preaching the Bible. And I know, you know, I've heard people over the years, you preach long enough, you hear all kinds of feedback and comments. You know, you get that, that zealot who comes and he's kind of sounding like his expository, but he's over saying something. He says, hey, brother, brother, just, just give us the word, brother. Just give us the word. All right, I'm hoping what you mean by that is, is like be bound to the expository authority of God's word. I hope that's what you mean. Not just stop talking about anything else but the Bible. That would be reading the Bible, not preaching, right? Preaching, preaching is why, I mean, if you read a Charles Spurgeon message, most famous preacher in the history of modern man, uh, you, would, you would get the Bible and you'd get a lot of Charles Spurgeon saying stuff because he's preaching. He's presenting the Bible, and then he's presenting life connected to the Bible and thoughts and thoughts for you and thoughts for him, etc. It's almost like what the preacher does is sets the word of God down like a roadway and then, then kind of zigzags back and forth across it. Yeah, we're in the Bible. Now we're talking about life, talking about you, talking about your feelings, talking about my experiences. We're back across the Bible, talking about its background, its history, blah, blah, blah. We're sort of zigzagging through a message over scripture so that not everything you hear 
And this is why you need to be careful when you listen to anything being said in association with the word of God. Not everything being said is the word of God. And the only thing that has any authority is what agrees with this word. So to preach things that that don't line up with the scriptures is to say something that nobody's obligated to follow. But to say something that is in line with the scripture is to say things that everybody is obligated to follow, right? The authority comes from the word. So let me introduce us to expository study or expository preaching. What does that word mean? Brian Chappell says, an expository sermon may be defined as a message whose structure and thought are derived from the biblical text that covers the scope of the text and that explains the features and the context of the text in order to disclose the enduring principles for faithful thinking, living, and worship intended by the Spirit who inspired the text. That word expository, right? To expound scripture, John Stott says, is to bring out of the text what is there. It is to expose it to view. That's why the idea of expository, it's an exposing of what this passage is trying to say. The opposite of exposition is imposition, which is to impose on the text what is not there. And that happens a lot from podcasts to popular conversations to pulpits. The idea that I want to say this, this idea, this topic's my favorite. I want to talk about this and I'm going to impose it on a passage that's really not about that or that barely even highlights that. And I'm going to kind of ignore the fact that what was written in the Bible was written for a reason and written in a particular way. I'm going to ignore all that because there's this one word in that verse that I want to make use of in the topic that I want to talk about. That's not expository. That's imposing things on the Bible. So we're going to study all the way through Hebrews, which is a way of doing expository study. So I want to answer the question, why study books of the Bible? Why start in Hebrews chapter one and go all the way through verse by verse, chapter by chapter? Well, two quick reasons. There's more than this. One, it prioritizes the story that God is telling and the truth that God is revealing. It prioritizes the story God is telling, right? God began in Hebrews one, by the way, there's no chapters and verses in the Bible, but he began and this thought followed that thought followed this thought. And and next thing you do, you get a whole letter that's inspired. God created the story. He wanted to talk about some things. I think I wrote this in your outline. Our habit, our approach to the Bible reading can be to first consult the table of contents of my personal life and then seek to find out how the Bible speaks to the things that I deem important in life. Right? So we come this morning and what's the table of contents of my personal life? Well, we traffic in, in certain topics we like certain topics. Life likes certain topics, right? So maybe on our list is things like fulfillment and happiness. You can't miss. If you use the word happiness, you can get everybody's attention, no matter what the message is about. Happiness and paying taxes. Everybody listens. 
Like, how is that possible? I want to be happy in paying taxes, right? Uh, morals, relationship advice. We want some of that. We, maybe political and social issues find their way into stuff that's kind of inside. We want, what does the Bible say about that? Money or success or careers, right? This is a table of contents of our lives. And we want to know what the Bible says about those things. And then the Bible starts talking on its own, right? It doesn't sit down and say, hey, what would you like to talk about? It just starts talking, right? And it says things like holiness, justification, the atonement for sin, forgiveness, righteousness, right? It's a table of contents that God wants to present these things. He wants to talk about these things, but these things might not be the things I want to talk about. There are some Christians who could not give an adequate explanation for what the word the atonement means. But from Genesis to Revelation, it's everywhere in the Bible. God wants to talk about it all the time. And yet we might be, I don't really know about that. But success, hmm? positivity, hmm? right? Because somebody came along and said, hey, how about that word? And, and we kind of bought it and went with it. So it's helpful to let God tell his own story and study through what did he have to say when you just pressed the play button and God started to speak, right? Secondly, it features the way that God has revealed himself and his purpose in this world, right? If you know anything about the Bible, I know a lot of folks that are new to the scriptures. You know, well, here's what the Bible is not. It's, it's not a topical index. It's, it's not a topical encyclopedia, Right? You can't go to the front of it and say, hey, yeah, I'm having some marriage problems lately. Where's, where's, the, where's the page on marriage? Let's see if I can find that real quick. Uh, we have 1,672. Okay, that's, that's the marriage section of the Bible. But you can't find that, can you? Because that's not how God revealed himself. Does God speak about marriage? All over the place. But he's going to write it into the storylines of a person's life. He's going to speak about it as a proverb. He's going to sing about it in the Psalms. He's going to make some comments about advice given from an apostle to a local church in a letter. And you're going to read it like you're reading a letter, right? So there's these, these genres and these nuances that God has put into these stories. And when you read through an entire letter, I mean, isn't that kind of like a, the purpose of a letter? How many guys, like this is how we read the Bible. Don't, don't read a letter this way, right? You're, you're, your wife is away and, you know, she's, she sends you a letter and, and you read the first two lines on Monday and then the next two on Tuesday. And then you get to the second paragraph next week sometime. By the time she gets back, you haven't read the whole thing. Like, oh, I didn't have time, honey. I got busy. But I, I read sentence one. It's like, you don't read a letter that way, do you? Right? So there's letters in the Bible. We pick them up and read it like it's a letter. There's stories, narrative, and bi uh, biographical sketches that are there. There's a rhythm to them. There's certain things that you're only going to notice it when you study the whole thing. That, hey, this keeps getting brought up in a variety of ways in this particular biography of Jesus. I never noticed that before. Because what many of us do when we come to the Bible is just kind of pick something out of nowhere. Let me just read this paragraph. I don't even know what's going on around it. I don't even know what was in the chapter before it. I don't know how many times that point has been made already in this gospel. 
Because I, I have not studied the whole book. Right? God has revealed himself in a certain way. So we want to cooperate with God's revelation. Derek Thomas, in his book, Expository Preaching, he says, consecutive expository preaching, that's when you study through a whole book, can inculcate sound habits of personal Bible study. Large areas of the Bible are rarely read by many Christians. They arouse greater dread than the minds of Moria did in Gandalf and Aragorn in the Fellowship of the Ring. Consequently, the Bible is reduced to favorite verses underlined or highlighted to provide stepping stones through murky waters. Can you go with me there for a second? Life, our ideas, our understandings, how to interpret the things going on in our world, murky waters. That's, that's a good description. Life is filled with murky waters. And then we try to bring the Bible into our, our murky waters that we're trying to find our way through. And we, we grab an underlined verse, a very familiar verse, an often quoted verse. And this is, this is what we call help from the Bible. Right? We're, we're pulling these things into this moment with us to find some kind of help. But do you recognize this, that when you do that, you, you are subject to the, to the personality picking of the Bible that you've been doing all these years. There are certain things in the Bible that each of us like better than other things. Right? Just, it, it's based a little bit in your temperament, what brings you comfort, uh, what you like and what you don't like. So you come to the Bible and you know this verse, and you know all the verses that talk about this particular topic because that particular topic matters to you. Then there's other things in the Bible you know very little about. And you've kind of just picked the stuff that you like. And you've constructed a theology. Now you're, now you're doing the murky water thing. And you're, you're trying to find a stepping stone in, in all the blur and the noise of life. And, and what do you got? What, you got that verse that you quote all the time. All the time. You got that verse. And two or three other ones that are going to help you right now in this moment. But that's not how God gave his word. God said a lot of things that I wasn't smart enough to realize some of what God was saying over here is relevant to this murky water right here. It doesn't have the word murky in it. But it's still relevant. It matters for the next step I'm going to take. It informs my attitude and my faith and my understanding of how God might be at work in the murky water moment. But it wasn't because the words murky and water were in the verse. And I needed to, to learn that. Listen, there's a couple of ways that you can look at this, this word. You know, we live life. It's almost like, you know, is this a topographical map, right? As you and I go to do life, we travel through spaces. So, you know, at some, at some moment, you're traveling through the valley. And, you know, in that moment, I, I, I want to know the valley verses. I want to know the verses that pertain to what life is like in the valley. So I'm a valley specialist now. And then a little while later, I may be, maybe I'm climbing mountains next. Maybe the terrain has changed. And I, and I want to be all about that now. I want to figure out how to, how to climb some mountains. And you're, so maybe your topography, it's, it's, it's sort of the ages that you travel through. Right? When you, you know, I got saved as a teenager. So I picked the Bible and start reading the Bible as a teenager. Can I just tell you, as a teenager, there was lots and lots and lots and lots of the Bible that I found very uninteresting. Because I was a teenager. There's like two things interesting as a teenager, the opposite sex and friends. What's the Bible got to say about that? You know, I didn't almost see anything else. I mean, I've told you guys this story before. I'm, 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 I'm a teenager. 
reading the letter of Romans. And I'm like, what on earth? What on earth is this even about? What has this got to do with anything? Right? Well, of course, I'm a teenager. Well, Keith, you know what? In a few years, you're going to discover it's got everything to do with everything, you idiot. <laughs> I didn't see that because the topography of my life was teenage topography. And the only things I had ears to hear, the stuff I was shopping for was coming from that perspective. And listen, we do this all throughout life. You know, maybe you fast forward a few years and you're in your 30s. You're in the throes of family, parenting. Children are being added. You're doing family. You're married. So, so the, you want to know everything in the Bible about parenting, about family. I mean, all of a sudden, all these verses start coming to life and you're a specialist in those areas. But you can stop paying attention to other aspects of life. It's, so now your own life is defining what's in this book because you don't pay attention to the other stuff, right? You could, I mean, we've watched this on a grand scale, get outside your personal life. Uh, you know, we live in America, the most wealthy, prosperous country on the planet. That's the context of our lives. We want to know how to do wealth. Well, welcome to the health and wealth gospel. Welcome to the people who decide, you know, I think I'm going to ignore the rest of the Bible, but every verse, I'm going to cherry pick every verse that talks about prosperity and healing and success and the good life. I'm going to grab all those verses. And every time I try to encourage somebody, it's going to sound like you're the head, not the tail, brother. Come on now. That's good preaching. Uh, yeah, can I tell you, there's a few other verses in the Bible that might actually speak to this moment as well. Besides you're going to rule and triumph. If you'll just do this, uh, yeah, did you read the part about people being sawn in two? I don't know if you did you see that part. How do you interpret that into the moment where we're more than conquerors, brother? It's in the Bible. Yeah, that guy bled out. Can you explain that one to me real quick? Why didn't he just stop bleeding when they sawed him in half? Well, because that's in the Bible too. The Bible's saying a lot of stuff in categories that it says are rather important. So. You could come to the Bible and, and limit its authority by only staring at it for what you have interest in. But when you come to Hebrews, for instance, and you just start studying Hebrews, it, it's more like picking up a kaleidoscope. Are you ever staring at a kaleidoscope? One, you have no idea what it's going to look like at first, right? You pick it up, you don't know which one it is, and you stare into it and you start turning it, and it's like these shapes and colors and textures, and it's like ah, eye candy going off everywhere. Well, Hebrews is kind of like a theological kaleidoscope that God says, hey, hey, pick this up. Stare into this dude. And you stare into Hebrews, and it's like you start turning to chapter one and chapter two, and you're like, oh my gosh, whoa. Did you, here, look at this. Did you just see that? It's full of stuff that you probably wouldn't stare at. But God thinks it's pretty amazing. God thinks it's what we needed to hear. God thinks it's critical and vital and important to our lives. So he wrote it in his word the way it is. And if you and I study it from beginning to end, we may find that the Bible speaking of the categories that are much more valuable than we ever imagined they were because we're 30 something raising kids. And this is speaking in the categories that might be a little bit outside my sweet spot, but I need to hear it. So Derek Thomas describes this consecutive 
expository study when he says, only by the discipline of consecutive expository preaching will a congregation be exposed to the full range of Scripture's interests and concerns. Why would a preacher desire to choose as his subject divorce or polygamy or incest other than the fact that they arise naturally in the course of exposition? Many a hearer will accuse preachers of conspiracy whenever the word begins to meddle. Ever feel like the preached word is meddling with your life? Happy is a preacher who can just point to the text and say, it just happens to be the passage we were meant to deal with this morning. I remember, you. some of you guys remember this, because I actually made a point of saying something about it. When we were studying through 1 Corinthians, we got to chapter 6, and Paul describes a, a list of sins. I think it's nine of them, if I remember correctly. He highlights nine sins that characterize those the lives of the Corinthians before God renovated them and changed them. And he put them all under this disqualifying heading. These are problematic. This will keep you away from God, etc. kind of a presentation. And he mentions stuff like sexual immorality, greed, disobedience to parents, homosexuality. And I remember when we got to that, it's like I, I was fully aware that no one will hear the other eight but they'll hear that one. Here he goes again. He's picking on the homosexuals. It's like, no, I was picking on the drunks and the other people that are in the passage, the sexually immoral people. I'm picking on everybody, right? Because the verse was talking about nine categories of sin. But we've been taught, you know, those Christian people, they're, they're against this. They're against, hey, dude, it's just in the verse. I didn't pick that verse. The verse was the next verse we just happened to be studying. So we get to visit it whether we like the verse or not. So this aspects of the Bible kind of pulls us into its domain. And it raises subjects that you and I might decide we don't want to talk about that. But this is the inspired word of God. God wanted to talk about it. So he brought it up. And he put it in the Bible. And we're going to come across it as we go through Hebrews. A variety of places that maybe we would not go. But God's word's going to take us there. So here's the advantage of expository study. But it comes from this understanding that the, the Bible is designed in a unique way by God. I wrote in your outline, there is a danger of one's temptation to self-medicate and self-prescribe as we navigate the murky waters of life. Thus, we seek limited favorite passages that make us feel the way we'd prefer to feel in that moment of life. But The scriptures are designed by God for a full-orbed revelation and impact. God designed this word. So it takes us places and it reveals things that are designed by God. This is not an accidental book. This is God choosing to talk about particular things that he says, now preach from this. Talk about this when you gather together. Right, so let me just give us a quick respect for the unique design of God's word this morning. Isaiah 55, we, we know this verse. Verse 10. This is how God speaks about his own word. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, they do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be. That goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. 
but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Right? So this is an interesting book. It's, it's like a heat-seeking missile. It's got target guidance in it, designed by God, that he put in this word to find its way into our lives and to accomplish something that he specifically had in mind. Now, I find it interesting if, you, if you've pondered the construction of this concept, God likens it to the rain. It's, it's, in, 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 in one unique moment, there was bread from heaven, right? Remember the manna story. But in this, it's interesting. How does God's word shape the thing that we're interested in? Because in this passage, I'm interested in the bread. I don't know what you're interested in. I'm interested in the bread. What do I get to eat? I'd like to eat some bread. There's bread in here. I like to eat. How do we get to the bread? Well, let's get a little bit removed from the bread and let's go way over here to God's word, which is like rain that does its work over here on a seed that's planted in the ground that develops into a sprout that turns into more seed and grain that somebody picks the grain and begins to make bread. How did you get the bread? You got it from way over there from the rain. What was God's word way over there in the rain that you ate it over here? So you and I, I mean, we're, again, we're Americans doing Google searches, right? I, I just want the bread, right? Can you just cut to the chase? Can you just give me my favorite verse? I don't have to study some deep theological concept or a whole book of Hebrews, for goodness sake. Well, God sent his word like the rain and it will do its thing over time in our lives. And God designed it a certain way to accomplish something. So we got to be careful that we don't just turn the Bible into quick theological sound bites that we try to use as soon as we get into the murky water. That's not how God designed it. It's not a magic eight cube, right? You guys know that thing? You shake it and the thing floats to the top and it answers a question. That's not how the Bible's designed. So we want to study it the way it's given. Right. Hebrews chapter four, we're going to come across this as we study Hebrews. Verse 12 says, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And it's discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This word is living and active. Don't just quote that. Let it creep you out a little bit. There's a difference between having a splinter in your body and having a creature in your body. Isn't there? You haven't seen the science fiction movies where they... You know, they stick an alien inside somebody, you know. I mean, Star Trek had this terrible torture thing that they would do where they actually let these beetle-looking things up inside somebody's nose. And then they explain to you what it's about to do. It's crawled inside your head, and it's going to go to your brain stem. It's going to do this and do this. All right, so that's freaking you out because this thing is inside of you, and it's got a mind of its own. It's going to do what it wants to do. <laughs> so living... And active, it gets inside of me and it does what it wants to do. Now, the good thing is it's written by the God who wants to breathe life into my soul. 
This is why I don't want to be in charge. I got nothing living and active. I got nothing. And God gives me his word so that it can travel into my soul and go places I don't even know how to make it go and do things inside of me I don't even know how to make it do. But that's the nature of this word. We want to preach from this word. We want to study and interact with this word. And then it says something else here. This word discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It answers the giant question of why? Why do I do the things that I do? And it doesn't just turn Christianity into what do you do? What should you do? What should you not do? Which is often what we turn Christianity into. But the Bible interacts with, the word that's living interacts with the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It travels into the motivation center. It travels into my reasons. It doesn't just ask, hey, Keith, what are you doing? It asks and reveals, why are you doing that? And it does it in the heart. All right, so let me just get a quick plug in for instruments in the Redeemer's hands. One of the reasons why we're teaching through this is because it does such a phenomenal job of presenting to us the Bible's interest is not so much in the what on the outside as much as the why in your heart. Because the why is the thing that just keeps producing and producing and producing the stuff that you're struggling with and the issues of life. Right, so here, here's week number two in the instrument's is titled, The Heart is the Target. Week number three is Understanding Your Heart Struggle. So you don't want to miss this study. It's going to be super helpful in identifying these things. Uh, everybody gets this. If, if you own any property at all in Southeast Louisiana, you know, even if you don't know the name of it, but you're going to know it after today, you, you know of and have encountered the kudzu vine. How many of you guys know what a kudzu vine is? Well, it's a foreign species. I I think it came from Asia at some point. And it is this rapid growing, make, it'll, it'll eat a building. I mean, you've driven around town and you've seen kudzu vine. It's the stuff that's growing all over a building. And just like in one summer, it can consume an entire building. It grows so fast. So I've got a kudzu vine network in my backyard. And so we have hedges that grow. So just the other day, I, I went out there and trimmed these hedges. I'm, I'm pulling the, lead, the kudzu vine growing off the top. I'm trimming the top of these things. And so we, we were on vacation for a week. We just came back. I come back and guess what's growing all out of the top of my bushes? Kudzu vine. Everywhere, kudzu vine. It's back. What was my problem? I just trimmed the, the vine. I didn't uproot the vine, did I? You know, do you know how many Christians are living a life trimming, kudzu vine trimming experience? Right? We know just enough about the Bible to know that, hey, I shouldn't be doing that, and I shouldn't do that, and I should stop that. And people pointed that out to me. My wife said this, and people always say this to me. And so what I am and should not be doing becomes really clear to us. There's stuff in the Bible about that. But what about why I do it? You know, it's Father's Day, so dads get a little bit of a pass today. But maybe yesterday, dad, 
or last week, you know, your words were really intense and harsh and unkind and angry. All right, so my question for you, Dad, is, is Christianity just this thing that, hey, when you go to church, you go to a men's meeting, I shouldn't do that. That's, that's not godly. That doesn't serve the people around me. I shouldn't do that. I need to stop doing that. Is that as far as it goes for you? Or does the word of God travel into the recesses and the thoughts and the intentions of the heart and ask the question, why do you keep doing that? Why did you say that? Why did you respond that way? Right? And, and, and pick whatever issue that we struggle with. You know, maybe, maybe it's not, and maybe it's gossip. Oh, yeah, I know, I'm not supposed to, you know, gossip. Why do you gossip? What are you after? What's the motivation, the intention of the heart that makes you a little bit loose with information for others to be informed by you about? Why did they need to hear that from you? Or do you just want to be told, you know, hey, listen, gossip is wrong. It's in the Bible. I'd like to know why I keep doing that. Because my only hope for change and growth is to know why do I keep doing that? Right? Nobody raise your hands, but there are people in the room here that conflict seems to follow you everywhere. There's you and then there's a shadow of conflict. It's like wherever you are, conflict will be in the room soon. Something will be said, something will happen. There's going to be conflict there. Christianity is not just, hey man, you you just need to behave differently. The word of God travels to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It wants to tell you why you're doing that. Because why you're doing it is connected to who God was supposed to be to you. That he's not. And the Bible's more worried about that than it is about foul language that you use or the, the image on your screen that you keep going back to or you visit the refrigerator too many times, you need to stop doing that or you're controlling and you inject your opinion in controlling subtle professional ways to control conversations. And it's not just trying to get you to see that you don't measure up. It's trying to get that out of the way so God can be to you who he wants to be but I'm going to need the word of God to travel into my heart and help me with that. All right, one last verse. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 says, all, in, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So when you pick up Hebrews, it's trying to do that. That's what it wants to do. It wants to equip you for every good work. It wants to do all that that verse describes. So when it moves into a category of the high priesthood of Jesus and guys like Melchizedek, and you're tempted to start reading faster because I can't even pronounce that guy's name, much less be interested in why he's in the Bible. 
the inspired word of God wants to speak to you the way God designed it in order to do exactly what 2 Timothy chapter 3 says it does. So there's going to be all kinds of places in Hebrews that you and I are going to be reading verses. We're kind of like, uh, I don't know if that matters to me. Oh, it's inspired by God. He wrote it. Let's stare at it long enough and see what is in this word. That's going to do one of these things to us. It's going to teach us. I know the word of God is coming to you and interacting with you. Well, it feels like these words. It feels like teaching. It feels like I, I just, I just saw something. Man, that, yeah, well, that makes sense. That's why this is connected. Ah, like a little light goes off. Right? I've encountered the word of God. It's teaching me something. But all these words, it feels like reproof. The word of God feels like reproof. That word in the Greek actually means to refute error. It means to adjust something, to oppose things. So you walk in here and was it a good message? Well, I don't know. I felt corrected. You know, it just, you know, it was against this idea or against that idea. How do I know I've read the Bible? Because it feels like it's teaching me. It feels like it's reproving things. It feels like it's correcting something. That word in the Greek, it means to, to straighten something or to restore it. So God reaches into our world and we come in here on Sunday and the pulpit should feel like it's straightening things out for us because all week long, the weight and the force of this world was bending me out of shape in ways and making my thinking get over here and my emotions and the stuff that's really affecting my life. I'm bent. I'm over here. I need the pulpit to help straighten me out. And it only can do that with the word of God. The God-breathed, authoritative word of God. It does these things to me. It trains me. That word means, it's, it's something that is used in the, in, in the culture for upbringing of children. Right? The, the Bible interacts with us in the way that you and I interact with our kids. Where we, we train them to do things. We install muscle memory in them. We get them to do stuff over and over and over and over again so they actually get good at it. The Bible is going to feel that way when it interacts with us. It's installing some spiritual muscle memory in our lives. So... How do we know? Was that, was that a good message? I don't know. Did it feel like 2 Timothy chapter 3? Listen, do not answer that question by, well, you know, how did, it, how did it report back to my personality or my personal value system or my preferences? You know, you mentioned that. That word's not a trouble word for me. And the message mentioned that word. And I don't know why people are troubled by that word. Because the Bible's troubled by that word. And if it was in a Effective message, it's true to the Bible. And these, these are hard times. These are hard times to interact with public settings because we are exposed to so many ideas. And every day, every day, it's not just the vocabulary, it's the attitude of those managing the vocabulary. What are you going to do when the people who are affirming and tolerant of something like homosexuality in the culture that we live in, they look, sound, and appear nicer than anybody in this room who reads their Bible. What are you going to do with that? Because 
if you don't sound like what they sound like, there's the trouble. If you don't affirm what they have affirmed. But remember, we we gather to submit ourselves to who has final say-so. Who has the authority to say about life, what matters and what doesn't matter? What's right and what's wrong? What's righteous and what's not? What's worthy to be believed in? God has spoken in his word and revealed some things to us. So we come and we preach expository messages because we want to expose God's word to our lives. One last thought. We're going to pray. Seth, can you come back up, buddy? Tim Keller says, in the first Protestant preaching manual, The Art of Prophesying, written in 1592, William Perkins wrote, the word of God alone is to be preached in its perfection and inner consistency. Perkins' brief volume spends substantial time establishing that the Bible is God's perfect, pure, and eternal wisdom, and that it, it has the power to convict the conscience and penetrate the heart. Do we as communicators of the Bible truly know that it carries God's own authority and power? The purpose of preaching is to preach the scripture with its own insights, directives, and teachings. I know a lot of times pulpits become very topical because it try, they try to live in the interest level of the audience. And that's not wrong. That's how you get Galatians, by the way. That's how you get 1 Corinthians, addressing situations and issues among people. But what, what if the book of Hebrews doesn't necessarily want to talk chapter after chapter about conservative and liberal politics? Or race and racism. It doesn't want to talk about that. What if it ignores that? Does it mean it's irrelevant? What if it doesn't want to talk about climate change? It doesn't want to bring up personal pronoun usage. What if that's where this book ends up going? What if it doesn't say anything about AI or hashtag me too or homeschooling? Or any topic that you and I run toward because that's a topic of interest for us. What if it goes into other categories and talks about other things? Might it be that the Holy Spirit who inspired these words knew we need what it talks about. Its subjects, its table of contents. So next week, we're going to start in the middle of Hebrews in order to understand why it starts in the beginning of Hebrews. If you want to read ahead, Hebrews chapter 12, first few verses there, that's where we're going to start. Because what we tend to listen for is in our own domain. But what we need to hear may not at all be what we thought we needed to hear. Maybe we need some insights that this Bible will give to us if we'll just let it speak to us. Let me do this in in closing this morning. And obviously this this message is is about how the pulpit interacts with our lives and how why we're going to study for a long time. I don't even know how long yet. uh, 
the book of Hebrews and why we will be in this when it keeps bringing up subjects that may not feel like the headlines. Why are we going to do that? Well, that's, that's the pulpit for here. But everything I just said is true of, of everybody who reads the Bible. If you just read the Bible, everything I said today matters to you. But you know who else it also matters to? Everybody who leads other people, like dads. Dads are authority figures. Designed by God to be that. You carry authority. And I don't think I'm at all off in saying this. Your authority is only righteous authority when you are in agreement with God. Dads, when you're in agreement with what God has said, right? anybody in marriage counseling one-on-one would be sitting with a wife and clarifying issues, maybe a poor leadership on a husband's part. The Bible doesn't require you to obey your husband into disobeying God. Doesn't require you to do that. He has authority, but his authority is bound into God's authority. All authority belongs to him, so it's borrowed authority. So, so dads, when you and I lead our families, we have the right to do that. We have authority to do that. But we should sound like this. The role that we play, the authority, the precious authority. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a whole series on authority because I think the world hates authority right now. It hates the thing that Jesus said, hey, I got all of it. Didn't that sound kind of messed up? All authority. Oh, I'm glad you got it because we hate that stuff. It's a good thing. It helps us figure out where we go and where God goes and where everything goes. So dads. When we go to lead, when we go to influence our families, how we handle and apply the word of God is massively important. If my life never references this word, then your, your authority then is a, a mystery. It's like, well, my, my grandfather, he used to say, and so I say, and it's like, uh... Maybe you need a little better authority than your grandfather's weird phrases. Do you reference this word in the way you lead? Does the character that's in this word get put on display as you go to lead? Does, is your family aware that you interact with the word of God in the Hebrews 4 kind of way that, that they would know? That you're in touch with this book judges the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. You ever had the Bible do that to you? It's very humbling. Because on the outside, you can always defend. But when the inside gets revealed and you have to face, why did I just do that? Hey, dad just said that because of this and this. That's why I said that. So can I ask all the dads to stand up this morning? We're going to pray for our dads. And so if you're close by there, family members, if you could join with your dads.
and praying for them. And maybe your dad's not here today and maybe you don't have family that you can connect with. And maybe you're looking around and you're seeing a couple of dads just standing by themselves. Uh, they're not by themselves because they couldn't be a dad and be by themselves. But maybe this family's not here with them for all kinds of reasons. Could you make sure that somebody's putting a hand on those dads and praying for them this morning? All right, let's, let's bow our hearts before the Lord. Father, fathers are your idea. Lord, you built the structure of family, therefore the structure of society and cultures out of roles of father and mother. But Lord, today... We honor and we want to pray for the fathers that are among us who are answering a divine call with their lives. Father, we first want to give thanks for our fathers among us. God, as each of us can remember, no matter how old we are, our dads were so influential. They played a role that nobody else could play. And Lord, even in this moment, this room is filled with the realities that nobody had a perfect dad. And some had very difficult dads. Father, we give you thanks in all things. Lord, especially for dads who have been a means of grace in the lives of so many that are here people who took steps in their lives that they would not have taken, who developed disciplines in their lives that served them that they would not have developed, who had boundaries in their lives that protected them for the years that their dad had influence in their lives, who have unique wisdom that got deposited in their lives that have served them as they have done life, as they have had jobs and careers and got married and had children. Lord, you use the vehicle of dad's to bring so much of that into our lives. So Lord, we we do stop and we say, thank you, Lord. Lord, some of us had dads who didn't lead us into the word, but Lord, they were a means of grace in our lives nonetheless. And they provided and they cared for us. Lord, we say thank you for those dads. Lord, there's a high calling in this room. Lord, we don't want to be crushed by it. So Lord, would you help us to make sure that we highlight dads, but... We don't deify them. Lord, I thank you that there's not a man standing here today who's called to be God. They're just called to be dad. There are boundaries. There are limitations. There's even weaknesses and sin that go into this role. So, Father, we pray for each dad that's standing here that has the opportunity to be influenced and the opportunity to shape and touch and encourage and steer and direct God, we pray for grace from you for each of these men. Power of the Holy Spirit, the wisdom of your word to be active in their hearts. To have deep convictions that are informed by this word with all of its 
right to speak to us. But to be humble men who are shaped by a word that judges the thoughts and the intentions of their own soul. Lord, to be men who can stand up the principles of truth that are in this word, but who do it as men who have feet of clay, their own failures. Humility would characterize the role that we pray. I want to pray particularly for dads who are here today who, who need hope. Lord, I just want to pray for every dad who right now is feeling like... I, I just need a sense of hope for where I'm at right now. Lord, I don't know what gifts are going to be given to dads today, some cool socks and ties, but Lord, would you give the gift of hope to dads here who feel like they don't have any? Lord, they do. There is a hope in you that cannot be taken away. There is a purpose that you have granted to us. There are promises that you have made to these dads. God, I pray for the gift of faith for dads here. For some who are in a moment where it just feels like life is too big, too outnumbered, the finances don't add up, I'm not sufficient. God, would you give the gift of faith to those dads right now? To realize a resource that comes from outside of them, that comes from beyond them, that comes from your abundance, Lord and your commitment to them. God, I want to pray for dads who are here who who need some unique grace in the midst of conflict. They're living in a setting that's featuring conflict. Oh, Lord, would you meet these dads in this moment? Lord, dads, perhaps more than anybody else in a setting of conflict, may hold a key to that conflict finding resolution. Lord, they may hold a key. Lord, would you give courage to those dads to use that key, to take a step, to believe that you are with them, to be used by you, to bring some restoration into a setting that's broken. But Father, in all this today, Lord, we honor these dads. We give you thanks for the role that each dad plays for the gift of grace that they are to us in shaping our families and therefore in shaping our church. And God, we pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon each of these men. Lord, that they might be used by you to bring glory to your name. And all the earth, Lord, in their families, in our church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Happy Father's Day to you guys. Hey guys, don't forget, it's a buy one, get one day. Only today. For dads. Or for dads, getting something for your kids.